Chapter 2, Part 1 Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 2, Part 1 Moral Influences in Early Youth my father's character and opinions. In my education, as in that of every one, the moral influences, which are so much more important than all others, are also the most complicated, and the most difficult to specify with any approach to completeness, without attempting the hopeless task of detailing the circumstances by which, in this respect, my early character may have been shaped, I shall confine myself to a few leading points, which form an indispensable part of any true account of my education. I was brought up from the first without any religious belief, in the ordinary acceptation of the term. My father, educated in the creed of Scotch Presbyterianism, had by his own studies and reflections been led early to reject not only the belief in revelation but the foundations of what is commonly called natural religion i have heard him say that the turning point of his mind on the subject was reading butler's analogy that work of which he always continued to speak with respect kept him as he said for some considerable time a believer in the divine authority of christianity by proving to him that whatever are the difficulties in believing that the Old and New Testaments proceed from, or record the acts of, a perfectly wise and good being, the same and still greater difficulties stand in the way of the belief that a being of such a character can have been the maker of the universe. He considered Butler's argument as conclusive against the only opponents for whom it was intended those who admit an omnipotent as well as perfectly just and benevolent maker and ruler of such a world as this can say little against christianity but what can with at least equal force be retorted against themselves finding therefore no halting place in deism he remained in a state of perplexity until doubtless after many struggles he yielded to the conviction that concerning the origin of things nothing whatever can be known this is the only correct statement of his opinion for dogmatic atheism he looked upon as absurd as most of those whom the world has considered atheists have always done these particulars are important because they show that my father's rejection of all that is called religious belief was not as many might suppose primarily a matter of logic and evidence the grounds of it were moral still more than intellectual he found it impossible to believe that a world so full of evil was the work of an author combining infinite power with perfect goodness and righteousness his intellect spurred the contradiction the sabien or manichean theory of a good and an evil principle struggling against each other for the government of the universe he would not have equally condemned and i have heard him express surprise 
that no one revived it in our time. He would have regarded it as a mere hypothesis, but he would have ascribed to it no depraving influence. As it was, this aversion to religion, in the sense usually attached to the term, was of the kind with that of Lucretius. He regarded it with the feelings due not to a mere mental delusion, but to a great moral evil. He looked upon it as the greatest enemy of morality, first by setting up fictitious excellencies, belief in creeds, devotional feelings, and ceremonies not connected with the good of humankind, and causing these to be accepted as substitutes for genuine virtues, but above all by radically viviating the standard of morals, making it consistent in doing the will of a being on whom it lavishes indeed all the phrases of adulation, but whom in sober truth it depicts as eminently hateful. I have heard him say that all ages and nations have represented their gods as wicked in a consistently increasing progression, that mankind have gone on adding trait after trait till they reached the most perfect conception of wickedness which the human mind can devise, and have called this God, and prostrated themselves before it. This ni plus ultra of wickedness he considered to be embodied in what is commonly presented to mankind as the creed of Christianity. Think, he used to say, of a being who would make a hell, who would create the human race with the infallible foreknowledge, and therefore with the intention that the greater majority of them were to be consigned to horrible and everlasting torment. The time, I believe, is drawing near when this dreadful conception of an object of worship will be no longer identified with Christianity, and when all persons, with any sense of moral good and evil, will look upon it with the same indignation with which my father regarded it. My father was as well aware as anyone that Christians do not, in general, undergo the demoralizing consequences which seem inherent in such a creed, in the matter or to the extent which might have been expected from it. The same slovenliness of thought and subjugation of the reason to fears, wishes, and affectations which enable them to accept a theory involving a contradiction in terms prevents them from perceiving the logical consequences of the theory. Such is the facility with which mankind believes, at one and the same time, things inconsistent with one another, and so few are those who draw from what they receive as truths any consequences but those recommended to them by their feelings, that multitudes have held the undoubting belief in an omnipotent author of hell, and have nevertheless identified that being with the best conception they were able to form of perfect goodness. Their worship was not paid to the demon which such a being as they imagined would really be, but to their own ideal of excellence. The evil is that such a belief keeps the ideal wretchedly low, and opposes the most obstinate resistance to all thought which has a tendency to raise it higher. Believers shrink from the very train of ideas which would lead the mind to a clear conception and an elevated standard of excellence, because they feel, 
even when they do not distinctly see, that such a standard would conflict with many of the dispensations of nature, and with much of what they are accustomed to consider as the Christian creed, and thus morally constitutes a matter of blind tradition, with no consistent principle, not even any consistent feeling, to guide it. It would have been wholly inconsistent with my father's ideas of duty to allow me to acquire impressions contrary to his convictions and feelings respecting religion, and he impressed upon me from the first that the manner in which the world came into existence was a subject on which nothing was known, that the question, who made me, cannot be answered, because we have no experience or authentic information from which to answer it, and that any answer only throws the difficulty a step further back, since the question immediately presents itself, who made God? He, at the same time, took care that I should be acquainted with what had been thought by mankind on these impenetrable problems. I have mentioned at how early an age he made me a reader of ecclesiastical history, and he taught me to take the strongest interest in the Reformation as the great and decisive contest against priestly tyranny for liberty of thought. I am thus one of the very few examples in this country of one who has not thrown off religious belief, but never had it. I grew up in a negative state with regard to it. I looked upon the modern exactly as I did upon the ancient religion, as something which in no way concerned me. It did not seem to me more strange that English people should believe what I did not, than that the men I read of in Herodotus should have done so. History had made the variety of opinions among mankind a fact familiar to me, and this was but a prolongation of that fact. This point in my early education had, however, incidentally one bad consequence deserving notice. In giving me an opinion contrary to that of the world, my father thought it necessary to give it as one which could not prudently be avowed to the world. This lesson of keeping my thoughts to myself at that early age was attended with some moral disadvantages, though my limited intercourse with strangers, especially such as were likely to speak to me on religion, prevented me from being placed in the alternative of avowal of hypocrisy. I remember two occasions in my boyhood on which I felt myself in this alternative, and in both cases I avowed my disbelief and defended it. My opponents were boys, considerably older than myself. One of them I certainly staggered at the time, but the subject was never renewed between us. The other one, who was surprised and somewhat shocked, did his best to convince me for some time without effect. The great advance in liberty of discussion, which is one of the most important differences between the present time and that of my childhood, has greatly altered the moralities of this question, and I think that a few men of my father's intellect and public spirit, holding with such intensity of moral conviction as he did, unpopular opinions on religion, or on any other of the great subjects of thought, would now either practice or inculcate the withholding of them from the world, unless in the cases, becoming fewer every day, in which frankness on these subjects would either risk the loss of means of substance, 
or would amount to exclusion from some sphere of usefulness particularly suitable to the capabilities of the individual. On religion in particular, the time appears to me to have come when it is the duty of all men, being qualified in point of knowledge, have on mature consideration, satisfied themselves that the current opinions are not only false but hurtful, to make their dissent known, at least, if they are among those whose station or reputation gives their opinion a chance of being attended to. Such an avowal would put an end, at once and forever, to the vulgar prejudice that what is called, very improperly, unbelief, is connected with any bad qualities either of mind or heart. The world would be astonished if it knew how great a proportion of its brightest ornaments, of those most distinguished even in popular estimation for wisdom and virtue, are complete sceptics in religion. Many of them refrained from avowal, less from personal considerations than from a conscientiousness, though now, in my opinion, a most mistaken apprehension, least by speaking out what would tend to weaken existing beliefs, and by consequence, as they suppose, existing restraints, they should do harm instead of good. Of unbelievers, so-called, as well as of believers, there are many species, including almost every variety of moral type. But the best among them, as no one who has had opportunities of really knowing them will hesitate to affirm, are more genuinely religious, in the best sense of the word religion, than those who excessively arrogate to themselves the title. This liberality of the age, or in other words, the weakening of the obstinate prejudice which makes men unable to see what is before their eyes, because it is contrary to their expectations, has caused it to be very commonly admitted that a deist may be truly religious, but if religion stands for any graces of character, and not for mere dogma, the assertion may equally be made of many whose belief is far short of deism. Though they may think the proof incomplete that the universe is a work of design, and though they assertedly disbelieve that if they can have an author and governor who is absolute in power as well as perfect in goodness, they have that which constitutes the principal worth of all religions whatever, an ideal conception of a perfect being, to which they habitually refer as the guide of their conscience, and this ideal of good is usually far nearer to perfection than the objective deity of those who think themselves obliged to find absolute goodness in the author of a world so crowded with suffering and so deformed by injustice as ours my father's moral convictions wholly deserved from religion were very much of the character of those of the greek philosophers and were delivered with the force and decision which characterized all that came from him even in the very early age at which i read with him the memorabilia of xenophon i imbibed from that work and from his comments a deep respect for the character of socrates who stood in my mind as a model of ideal excellence and i well remember how my father at that time impressed upon me the lessons of the choice of hercules 
at a somewhat later period the lofty moral standard exhibited by the writings of plato operated upon me with great force my father's moral inclinations were at all times mainly those of the socratati viri justice temperance to which he gave a very extended application veracity perseverance readiness to encounter pain and especially labor regard for the public good estimation of persons according to their merits and of things according to their intrinsic usefulness a life of exertion in contradiction to one of self-indulgent ease and sloth these and other moralities he conveyed in brief sentences uttered as occasion arose of grave exhortation or stern reprobation and contempt but though direct moral teaching does much indirect does more and the effect my father produced on my character did not depend solely on what he said or did with that direct object but also and still more on what matter of man he was in his view of life he partook of the character of the stoic the epicurean and the cynic not in the modern but in the ancient sense of the word in his personal qualities the stoic predominated his standard of morals was epicurean inasmuch as it was utilitarian taking as the exclusive text of right and wrong the tendency of actions to produce pleasure or pain but he had and this was the cynic element scarcely any belief in pleasure at least in his later years of which alone on this point i can speak confidently he was not insensitive to pleasures but he deemed very few of them worth the price which at least in the present state of society must be paid for them the greater number of miscarriages in life he considered to be attributable to the overvaluing of pleasures accordingly temperance in the large sense intended by the greek philosophers stopping short at the point of moderation in all indulgences was with him as with him almost the central point of educational precept his inculcations of this virtue fill a large place in my childish remembrances he thought human life a poor thing at best after the freshness of youth and of unsatisfied curiosity had gone by this was a topic on which he did not often speak especially it may be supposed in the presence of young persons but when he did it was with an air of settled and profound conviction he would sometimes say that if life were made what it might be by good government and good education it would be worth having but he never spoke with anything like enthusiasm even of that possibility he never varied in rating intellectual enjoyments above all others even in value as pleasures independently of their ulterior benefits the pleasures of benevolent affections he placed high in the scale and used to say that he had never known a happy old man except those who were able to live over again in the pleasures of the young for passionate emotions of all sorts and for everything which has been said or written in exaltation of them he professed the greatest contempt he regarded them as a form of madness the intense was with him a byword of scornful disappropriation 
he regarded as an aberration of the moral standard of modern times compared with that of the ancients the great stress laid upon feeling feelings as such he considered to be no proper subjects of praise or blame right or wrong good and bad he regarded as qualities solely of conduct of acts and omissions there being no feeling which may not lead and does not frequently lead either to good or to bad actions conscience itself and the very desire to act right often leading people to act wrong consistently carrying out the doctrine that the object of praise and blame should be the discouragement of wrong conduct and the encouragement of right he refused to let his praise or blame be influenced by the motive of the agent he blamed as severely what he thought a bad action when the motive was a feeling of duty as if the agents had been consciously evil-doers he would not have accepted as a plea in mitigation for inquisitors that they sincerely believed burning heretics to be an obligation of conscience but though he did not allow honesty of purpose to soften his disappropriation of actions it had its full effect on his estimation of character no one prized conscientiousness and recititude of intention more highly nor was more incapable of valuing any person in whom he did not feel assurance of it but he disliked people quite as much for any other deficiency provided he thought it equally likely to make them act ill he disliked for instance a fanatic in any bad cause as much as or more than one who adopted the same cause from self-interest because he thought him even more likely to be practicably mischievous and thus his aversion to many intellectual errors or what he regarded as such partook in a certain sense of the character of a moral feeling all this is merely saying that he in a degree once common but now very unusual threw his feelings into his opinions which truly it is difficult to understand how any one who possesses much of both can fail to do none but those who do not care about opinions will confound this with intolerance those who having opinions which they hold to be immensely important and their contraries to be prodigiously hurtful have any deep regard for the general good will necessarily dislike as a class and in the abstract those who think wrong that they think right and right what they think wrong though they need not therefore be nor was my father insensitive to good qualities in an opponent nor governed in their estimation of individuals by one general presumption instead of by the whole of their character i grant that an earnest person being no more infallible than other men is liable to dislike people on account of opinions which do not merit dislike but if he neither himself does them any ill offence nor connives at it being done by others he is not intolerant and the forbearance which flows from a conscientious sense of the importance to mankind of the equal freedom of all opinions is the only tolerance which is commendable or to the highest moral order of minds possible 
End of chapter 2 Moral Influences in Early Youth Part 1 Recording by Gary Gilbert Wheaton, Illinois